G'day, folks, and welcome. I'm Chris Faber. And I'm TJ Stedman. And you're listening to the Answers to Giant Questions podcast coming to you from sunny Western Australia. G'day, folks, and welcome back to the Answers to Giant Questions podcast. You know what we are. We are the show that tackles your questions about the biblical giants. We took a little break over the Christmas and New Year festivities because it's that time of year when we all have the better things to do <laughs> but we're back with a vengeance and the new year is going to be exciting today we continue our little series on the anti-genealogy in genesis 4 that's right chris welcome back everybody thanks for your support last year i hope you all had a great christmas how was your christmas chris mine was delightful um it was good to have just a break off work even though it was just a week and a half spent a lovely time with the family my brother's pool, playing with my many, many nieces and nephews, uh, playing the old Xbox, the original big chunky Xbox from 20 years ago. So playing uh, some retro video games with them. The annual uh, water balloon fight, which is becoming a family tradition. Um, it was good. Lots of uh, interesting presents and books and shirts and things. But really, it's all about the kids. Us adults kind of get ignored during Christmas time, don't we? Pretty much, yep. I uh, just sat by the pool and let the kids uh, go for their lives around at my sister's place. That's That was Christmas Day for us and uh, the traditional Christmas dinner with the in-laws that evening. And, yeah, that was uh, that was pretty much it. Um, yeah, so a nice, quiet, low-key one. Uh, New Year's, I didn't even bother. I was in bed at 10 o'clock, did not care. So, uh, yeah. That pretty much wraps up the so-called festive season. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I'm the same as you. I figure, why, why wait? Uh, no, why wait until midnight? It's still going to be the new year, whatever time I wake up in the morning. Yeah, yeah, pretty much. <laughs> we better get on with the show. Now uh, we've got another baby name chart topper for you this week. When we continue to watch in awe as the biblical author destroys the pride of Babylon by tearing apart their claim to superiority on the basis of their cultural and technological innovations. But this still works as a genealogy for storytelling purposes, though, doesn't it? I mean, we were talking before about how one of the things that a genealogy does is show the connection between the starting point and the end point to help you see how certain themes or traits connect from one point to the other. So we start at a bad place with a guy like Cain, and then we finish up with another bad guy, Lamech, and we can see how they connect because of the things they have in common, and that's designed to tell us something. Yeah, that's exactly right, mate. It, it is indeed presented as a genealogy for that purpose, but we also need to be mindful that the fact that a story is told in the form of a genealogy doesn't mean that we're talking about literal genetic connections without any gaps, or even real people for that matter, and with some kind of unbroken line of descent that you could use to trace a bloodline or something like that. What we see in Genesis 4 is not a story of family, but a story of civilization. And those two are in direct contrast. We had a family back in the beginning of Genesis 4, but now we have isolation and hopelessness and a lack of meaning or purpose as people seek to please themselves apart from God. The people flocked to the cities, attracted by the perks and the benefits of civilization, only to find themselves chasing after the wind. When they get tired of running after the wind, they realise that they've left behind their God, their people and their purpose. The story serves as a warning for the people of Judea that life in Babylon might seem attractive with all its bells and whistles, 
But behind the blue paint and the cosmetics, there's a violent evil at work that seeks to destroy the image of God in mankind. Let's take a look now at the scriptures once again. We're still in Genesis 4, verse 18. And this time, the man of the moment is Methushael. So here's verse 18. To Enoch was born Irad, and Irad fathered Mahujael, and Mahujael fathered Methushael, and Methushael fathered Lamech. So we've got this connection between all these names, which is presented as one fathering another. And we talked before about how biological parentage is not in view here, because no man can give birth, as this terminology might suggest. So we can't take this literally and talk about bloodlines and that kind of thing. What we have here is a situation where one thing leads to another thing. We're talking in a lot of abstract terms here. What exactly is it that we are tracing here in this fake genealogy? Yeah, that's a good point, Chris. It can be really easy to get caught up in the abstractions and just talking about concepts, but people want something to hang their hats on here, so we're just going to have to be blunt. And at some point, we're going to do that, and it will all become crystal clear. All right, then. So are you going to do that now? No. What? No spoilers, mate. We're building to something here. This is all going to come together soon. All right. So what can you tell us, you and your secrets? What's the point of having a podcast if you're not going to say anything? Well, fair enough. Let's talk about Methuselah. A few notes on the background first as is the pattern that we've established in our exploration of these names. We've had some commentators in the past suggesting that this name is very similar to the one that appears in Genesis 5, the guy named Methuselah who is well known as the longest lived person in the Bible. But there's a problem with that. And it comes down to the simple fact that these names are spelt with different consonants in the Hebrew, so you can't really equate them without doing violence to the text. Indications are quite strong that this name has a West Semitic background like most of the other names that we find in the primeval history. It would appear to be made up of two main parts. The first half of the name has been suggested as Mutu, a West Semitic word which means man or warrior or hero. The idea of maturity exists in this word and thus it only applies to adult males. It's a very rarely used form in Biblical Hebrew and usually occurs in the plural, but doesn't come with these heroic connotations in the Bible. If this form existed in the name originally, it's likely to have been modified by the author to create some new meaning. There are very few scholars who will challenge the notion that this first part of the name means anything but man, despite the rarity of this kind of form in biblical Hebrew. And you know from what we've studied already about the Hebrew terminology for man, we usually have something like Adam or Ish or Enosh. Moving on to the second part of the name, some have understood it to be a reference to Sheol, the place of the dead. By extension, the reference to Sheol is taken to be representative of the underworld deity by the same name. Basically, they're saying that this name should translate to something like Man of Sheol. Now, as attractive as that proposition may be for an audience interested in the Divine Council worldview, we have a problem in that this name is not attested anywhere. Nobody uses Sheol as a theophoric element in a name. And if a biblical author had intended to use that in wordplay, then why would they change it so that it doesn't read like that anymore? It doesn't make a lot of sense unless we could show that the name had been changed to Man of Sheol. That would make you stand up and take notice. Having said that, it's quite commonly thought that the final part of the name is another theophoric element, which refers to the Canaanite deity El. You have that L sound at the end. And of course, 
for those critical scholars, they will assume that El is the same as Yahweh and assume that we're talking about people that the biblical author would have approved of. I think we've already established quite adequately that that's clearly not the case. El might be a reference to God, but if it is, it's not going to be the God of the Canaanites. That leaves the middle part of the name with the sh sound, which is believed to be a genitive construction connecting the two parts of the name. That means that according to the popular translation, we should be reading this as man of God. If you've been following us for a while, you should know that, that is absolutely not what is going on here by any stretch of the imagination. Well, that just uh, leaves me with one question, Tim. What is going on here then? Well, once again, it looks like we have a situation where an original name that might have existed for a real historical person has been appropriated by the scriptural author to make a point. Where we might have originally had something like Man of God, we have that name altered slightly for the purpose of our audience in the time of the exile. So how do we know that it's been changed and what exactly is the point of doing that? Okay, well, assuming that we had an original form that was something like Man of God, we have a Semitic name because it says El rather than something like Yah, which would be Hebrew. Uh, whichever way you approach this, we don't have anything like original Mesopotamian provenance. This is a supplied name designed to tell us something. Remember how last time we looked at Mahuya El and his name was something like Divine Life or Enlivened by God or something like that, but the biblical author changed it to Struck Down by God. We're going to see a similar thing here. Let's have another look at the second half of the name, Matusha El. There is another way to construct that portion of the name, which is consistent with widespread usage in West Semitic language groups, also found in biblical use and included in some biblical names. It can be read as Sha'al, which means to ask. We see this in the context of prayers and petitions, as well as in common usage. The first part of the name is probably more easily recognized as death or dying. Here we have the common Semitic construction for death, usually written as mot. It's a form that we find commonly in biblical Hebrew as well. Remember that the vowels were not supplied in the original text. So our author is saying that this is not a man of God. A man of God is someone who God hears. A man of God is someone who prays and receives the favor of God, who mediates for others. But this man represents the death of prayer and the futility of petition. Methushael is the death of relationship with God and the determination of man to succeed in spite of him. He is the impenetrable city wall which has divided man from God so that God will not hear or respond. Yeah, that's interesting. It reminds me of Exodus when Pharaoh hardened his heart and then God hardened Pharaoh's heart. Yeah, that's right. There's a real emphasis on hardness and the reciprocity between God and man. Methushael is not just symbolic of mankind's resistance against God, but also representative of God giving over the people to their sin. It's a two-way street. How do you think people end up in a situation where they don't pray anymore? I think it's one of those things that comes from living a fast-paced life that's busy and full of demands and activities and expectations and deadlines. And that's not to say that ancient Babylonians were not religious or anything. They certainly were quite busy doing their religious obligations as well. And we can be quite busy ourselves, can't we? But, you know, one of the great distinctions of the biblical faith is the sanctity of the Sabbath and the requirement for rest. That's unique to the faith of God's people. And it tells us a lot about how our God cares for our needs rather than being self-centered like the gods of the nations. While the Babylonians were kept busy appeasing various gods and carrying out all kinds of ceremonies, the pace of life around them was overwhelming. City life never stops. You've heard of the city that never sleeps. But life in Babylon was very different to what the Jewish people were used to. 
Matusha L is yet another character who appears only for a fleeting moment in scripture and is never spoken of again. There's no backstory, no explanation of meaning. The only thing he achieves is the next generation, and that's going to be Lamech. And speaking of Lamech, that will be the focus of next week. Probably the next couple of weeks after that too. We've got a lot to say about Lamech. He's a pretty bad dude. All right, so we've got that coming up, and that's going to be uh, going to be really interesting. Uh, so stick around as we continue in Genesis four. But for now, it's high time that we kicked off uh, Giant Answers Q and A for two thousand and twenty-three. I want to hear your giant questions. If you have a question about stuff you've heard on the show or somewhere else, something you found in your Bible, or just some general feedback you'd like to tell us and the world at large, here's how you do it. Head to the website, giantanswers.com. Send me an email at giantanswers.outlook.com. I personally receive all your mail, and I will try to get to all of it. I love hearing from you, especially if I can help you get answers to your giant questions. So Johnny sent us an email via the website, giantanswers.com, and he asked, do giants still exist? Wow. Okay, well, that's a big way to kick off the new year with a question like that. Thanks, Johnny, for sending that one in. And just remember, listeners, you can send your questions in the same way by using the contact form on the website, giantanswers.com. So it's a pretty simple question, and that means, of course, that it doesn't have a simple answer. Let's start with the naturalistic approach. If we consider the giants that the Bible talks about, then we're looking for people who stand quite tall, perhaps in the vicinity of six and a half feet tall and upwards of that. We don't really have a lot of data from the Bible about the height of the giants, but interestingly enough, it's the different manuscript variants that we see concerning the story of David and Goliath that give us some reasonable minimum or maximum figures, depending on which manuscript tradition you prefer. So if we take the majority of ancient sources on the height of Goliath, then we have him at six foot nine. But if we go by the Masoretic text, which is what most Bibles are based on, then we have him at nine foot nine, which is a substantial difference. The other person whose height gets mentioned in the Bible is a giant who is not named, but is described as being an Egyptian standing at five cubits in height. And assuming an Egyptian cubit on an Egyptian person, we could see that guy in the vicinity of eight foot seven. Even by Israelite standards, assuming the common cubit of 18 inches, he would measure at seven foot six, which is still really impressive. And there are no divergent manuscript traditions to cast doubt on the height recorded for that guy. So if we're speaking only in terms of height, that would give us a fairly reliable indication of what kind of size the biblical giants really were. And you know we can find people of fairly substantial height today, maybe not more than eight and a half feet tall, but it does happen from time to time. However, there is a substantial difference between modern people who reach that kind of height and these ancient warriors that are described in the Bible. And that really comes down to physique. You just can't be a warrior if you're suffering from something like gigantism. Modern people of the kind of size described in scripture wouldn't even be able to stand under the weight of the armour they were wearing for that kind of combat, never mind being able to fight as effective soldiers. Of course, I realise that in the current times that we live in, there have been stories of giants encountered in real combat. The most famous of these would be the story that's come to be known as the Kandahar Giant. Now, I've been curious about this one for a while because it certainly would be an eye-opening encounter and it would be great to be able to substantiate it. Unfortunately, we have no material evidence to back up the stories told by those who allegedly had these, this encounter with a giant cave-dwelling freak that allegedly killed a number of American soldiers. I'm not saying that it never happened or that these people are lying. What I am saying is that I remain sceptical until something more substantial than a story or a sketch allegedly from memory, comes to light to back up the claims. Uh, there was another story recently, actually, along similar lines. 
Uh, and of course, people have claimed conspiracy and said there's a big cover up. And that's why these guys don't have any evidence to support their story. I, I would just like to point out that nobody is covering up the fact that you have guys like Robert Wadlow, Xiao Ming, Shaquille O'Neal, Leonard Stadnick, Sultan Kosin, Andre the Giant, or any number of other really enormous people getting around in recent history. Some of those guys are still alive today. Sultan Kosin is the tallest guy alive today. He's a touch under eight foot three. So if you're going to claim that there's some kind of a cover-up because giants prove the Bible, and that's why people are trying to hide them, then you have to explain how it is that people who are just as tall as the biblical giants are clearly not being covered up today. Okay, so as I said, that's a naturalistic approach and just looking at things from a purely physical vantage point. The next logical question is, what about supernatural beings? What about cryptids and monsters and that kind of thing? Wouldn't the giants fit in a category like that? Yeah, that one is harder to deal with because now we're outside of the realm of material evidence. Now we're getting outside of purely physical beings and maybe even shapeshifters. But again, we have to define our terms. If we're going to talk about giants in some kind of transcendent form that's not limited to simple physicality. And I've probably already played my hand here because I did refer to the Kandahar giant just now specifically relating to the question that we're addressing here today, which is concerned with the giants as they appear in scripture. And do they still exist? We need to compare apples with apples. You will notice as you go through scripture that the giants are always either warriors or divinized kings, not just regular people. That means that there's some kind of association with a particular social class that connects them to the unusual physical traits manifested in these people. When you look at the example of Nimrod, you see someone who became a giant and he wasn't born like that. In my book, I argue that this was actually the normal way that giants occurred in populations. It wasn't a case of heredity, so much as some kind of thing that was done to achieve that result, and it appeared in certain social and religious ranks. This is what the Bible called the iniquity of the Amorites. It's not so much what they were doing as what they were becoming. But you just don't see that kind of thing anymore. Even in situations where the ritual and religious context still exists, we don't find giant hominids emerging as a result of those practices. And that comes down to something that I was saying recently about the re-emergence of the giants, the supernatural power that was at work behind the origin of the giants in the Amorite culture simply isn't there anymore. It doesn't work. All that's left is an empty shell of formalities and reenactments, but there's no substance to the rituals and there's no power manifested in the participants. The giant clans of the world are no more. God has cut them off. As I say, I've spoken about this recently on the podcast, and I also wrote about it in my book, Answers to Giant Questions. Indeed you did. And, uh, you know, we might still see odd random traces of giant people here and there, but we don't see the kind of people that the Bible speaks about, entire tribes of giant warriors or divinized kings with the power of the gods at their fingertips, at least not in the modern day. True. I should probably point out, though, that everything that I have said or published about giants up to this point has been focused on what the biblical data can sustain. I don't research paranormal phenomena outside of scripture. It's not that I don't think there's anything out there, but I choose to limit myself to a particular field of study. And there are other people out there who are quite happy to go about chasing giants all over the world. I'm not going to do that. So I just want to say for the record that I don't rule out the possibility that the giants who were driven out of the biblical lands did indeed spread to other parts of the world. There is a chance that populations of giants did exist for substantial periods of time after the biblical authors wrote them out of the pages of history. I think it's highly improbable that they still exist, but it's not impossible. When I say highly improbable, I am referring to the statistical chances of such a tribe being able to maintain any kind of genetic integrity in the face of booming world population and continual interbreeding. I've said many times that it only takes a handful of generations to completely normalize human DNA 
So in the space of even a few hundred years, an entire giant clan could be eradicated from history simply through interbreeding. Mm. So, Tim, you mentioned uh, earlier cryptids and other strange creatures. Well, actually, you did. But anyway, cryptids and other strange creatures seem to be getting increased exposure these days since everyone has a camera and the sprawl of urbanisation is intruding constantly on previously undisturbed natural habitats. Perhaps there are some remnants of divine mixture with the good creatures that God created or even with the Nephilim, but we're a long way from being able to say with any certainty what these things are or if they're even real at all. And I say that even as a person who's experienced the paranormal on several occasions. I'm starting to think that our fixation on the question of what is it when we see something strange is blinding us to the real issue, which is why am I seeing this? What is the purpose of this encounter? What function did this event serve in my life? And as far as cryptids go, this is another thing that I covered earlier on the podcast series when people send in questions about the Nephilim interbreeding with animals. We don't have any decent manuscript evidence to suggest that this was even happening in the first place. The usual references that people will bring up in support of that idea are usually only talking about things like breeding mules or eating meat. I don't deny that people are seeing weird stuff out there. I just think that it's poor form to try and manipulate the Bible to substantiate your experience. The Bible doesn't have to say something about everything, and the Bible is under no obligation to validate your experiences or your worldview. So the bottom line in all this is that if you want to know whether the strange creatures that the Bible mentions are still present and active in our world today, I can't give you a 100% definitive, secure answer, but I would lean towards a high degree of scepticism regarding anything that anybody has to say unless there's something substantial to back up their claims. Now, we're running out of time here. We need to wrap this up. So the answer to the question, do giants still exist today, is maybe. But just to be clear on this, if we really were talking about giants the way that the Bible talks about giants, then we would need to see populations, not just some random individual who happens to be a bit taller than average. I don't want to hear about people rushing out and tackling some guy in the street and beating him up because he looked like a giant. This is one of the devil's favorite games, of course. Make people suspect that somebody else is the enemy. And then you've divided people who might otherwise have been united against him. Don't fall for it. Every human being bears the image of God, even if he happens to be exceptionally tall. And the respect and reverence that we have for God should be on display in the way that we treat our fellow humans. Absolutely. That's all for now. We'll catch you next week when we start talking about Lamech. See you then. It's time to wrap up today's episode. But if you want more, don't forget to get yourself a copy of Answers to Giant Questions. We're asking readers to please leave a review of the book on Amazon or Goodreads to help it become more visible in search results. Even if you just give it stars, that'll help. But a full review is certainly really appreciated. Please also leave a review of this podcast wherever you found us so that new listeners can find us here on the show. In the future, we want to be talking about your stories as well, not just our own. So if you have had a particular paranormal or spiritual experience, we want to hear from you. And we're also looking for your testimonies about how you have found the content and answers to giant questions to be helpful and or useful. Of course, this podcast comes out every week, but you want to make sure you never miss an episode. So if you haven't already subscribed, do that now and you'll get notified when each new episode drops. That's all we have time for today. We'll catch you next time on the Answers to Giant Questions podcast. Thank you for listening to the Answers to Giant Questions podcast, a production of the Raven Creek Social Club. If you like what you heard today, please take a moment to rate or review the show. Music supplied under copyright by Grave Forsaken, graveforsaken.com. You can get the book, Answers to Giant Questions, by DJ Stephen on Amazon. Hate the back of the Check out the other podcasts at ravencreekforsaken.com. Read the blog and have us on socials, don't forget to subscribe to the friends of the show. Send us all your questions and stay tuned to this podcast to get answered. We'll see you next time. Until then, stay safe and God bless.
Uh, today we continue our little... Uh, here we are, indeed. This is all building to some really exciting stuff. I'm really, really thrilled about this. Oh, save that for the show. <laughs> Did you get any cool prezzies? I was more concerned with sort of making sure the kids got something awesome. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, for me, I kind of waited until the Boxing Day sales and then I bought stuff I wanted. It's <laughs> a good strategy. Although the children did surprise me with a plush hot sauce bottle. Yeah. Okay. Don't know why, but anyway, they thought I just wanted to have a hot sauce bottle that I could cuddle in bed. It's either that or your wife. Yeah. Both are hot and spicy. That's right. So, yeah. Excellent. Now right. yeah, i got uh, two hotties in the bed with me. My niece uh, got me a, a fishing for floaters game, I think it is. It's like a fishing rod with plastic poo. Um, wasn't as bad as I thought it would be. Currently lamenting the lack of eggnog. I thought it was going to suck. Ah, yes. Yeah. Nog-free life. I'd become accustomed to just being able to have it whenever I wanted and those days are over. Uh, yes, the lure of the golden liquid has lulled you into the false sense of nogginess. Mm. The eventual haze of the eggnog coma has to give way to everyday life. My uh, mum bought one for the kids to try, but no one liked it, so I ended up taking it home. Oh, beauty. Yeah, yes, I'm back there hitting up the service station. Like a true junkie. Yeah. I think that's going to be the shortest episode ever. Uh, pretty short. Yep. Nice. It's a tall topic, but a short episode. Yeah, well, you know, we've been in uh, that one verse for <laughs> third week in a row. And there's another yeah. But, uh, yeah, uh, next week's going to be awesome. Did you end up going to the um, giant, whatever that was, last week? Uh, yeah. Sunday? Yep, um, I put some photos up on Facebook. Um, okay. Yeah, it was pretty fun. I didn't get to see all of them. Um, somebody burnt one down. Um, might have okay. And, you know, Mandra. So, uh, yeah, probably some meth head. Mm. Thought it'd be fun. Set one on fire. So, um, yeah, they burnt one to the ground. Um, but anyway, got to see three. There was one more bit further to travel and was getting late so we didn't go there yeah um and there's that one in Subiaco which I haven't seen yet okay so out of the an original six five remain and I've seen three of them cool <laughs> okay I will tell whether uh Mandra can uh endure some artistic talent for another 12 months did you take the kids with you Oh, yeah. Yep, they had a great time. Because you're allowed to climb on them, too. So the kids got up there and oh. climbed all over the giants. Bye. 